Good morning, City Hill. Great to see you guys. I thought I'd start off with a confession this morning. Um, you know, the youth are out camping. And every time it would snow this weekend, I started laughing. <laughs> I know that probably reflects something. I just like, they're camping in this. So I figured this will either be the worst camping weekend ever, or it's going to be the best when they all bond together the weekend that it snowed and we lived to talk about it. So, um, is are Sam and Amanda here today? What's that? Just Sam. Hey, appreciate you guys from South Africa. Come on and stand up for a second. Just we got one of our ministry partners. They're back for a couple of months here. Get a chance to shake their hand and find out what God's doing in South Africa through their ministry. So I appreciate your prayers for my health last week. I uh, called Gary at about 6.30 in the morning last Sunday, and uh, I, was re- I was all set to go. And I woke up and I turned to Janet and I said, I don't really think I should be preaching this morning. Um, I can just see, let's open the word of God. To, I, they're, gonna, they're not going to be able to hear me. So I called Gary, and Gary gave a great sermon. I appreciate the strong bench we have here at church where we got wonderful ministers among us who stand up and are ready to preach the word of God. My father-in-law would always say to me, Kent, always be ready to preach, pray, or die. It's good counsel. So uh, Gary was ready to preach, and so I sat in my big chair under my blanket, and I watched church on Facebook Live. And it was great. But I wanted to tell you, it was, although it's great, don't ever stay home just because you want to stay home and watch it on Facebook Live, Okay. God calls us to gather together as his church. We're not called to be spectators and watch church. We're called to enter, and the kind of worship we had this morning isn't happening when you're alone in your living room. But if you're sick or if you're not able to make it to church, as my mother and others are not able to make it to church anymore, Facebook Live is a great way to connect to our church. Gary, come on up for a minute. So as I watched and listened to Gary's wonderful sermon, I had some questions. I thought, ooh, I'd love to ask Gary about that. Got some conversation going this week, and I thought, well, let's let Gary answer these questions himself. You know, one of the things that the Scripture tells us to do is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and and your mind. That means as a Christian, we're not called to shut off our minds. God wants us to honor him with our minds. And one of the ways that the early church dealt and learned scriptures is they debated and they talked and they dialogued. And as they did, they came to understand the truth of the gospel. So I have a question for Gary this morning. And you brought up some debate or some question about salvation when you talked about a woman that had a dream. First of all, love you very much, brother. Love you, brother. It's my friend and fellow minister. Um, about a woman who had a dream and God told her, I never knew you. So during this week, there was just some question of, okay, what does that mean about my salvation? Is is salvation truly by grace or is it really dependent upon our works and what we do for Christ? And I thought I'd give you a chance just to answer that. Good. And that thing on Timothy, are you trying to uncover some heresy that we... Exactly, yeah. All right. Whoa. Well, um, when I talk to people uh, about the Lord, I say there's 
one thing that separates Christianity from every other religion, because people say, well, you can get there this way, this way, this way. It's just different ways of knowing God. But Christianity differs from every other religion in this one aspect, and that is grace. And nobody else in any other religion is sure they're going to heaven because they're working their way. We alone say that it's God's work. It's, it's the only religion that teaches it's God's work, and it's his forgiveness and his payment on the cross that totally forgives us for our sins. And I used the word, I talked about the word knowing God. And by the way, the Lord in her dream did not say, I never knew you. He said, I don't know you. And um, I called her again to make sure that I had understanding right. And she had the understanding. It wasn't that she wasn't born again or not going to heaven, but it was a firm warning from the Lord. You know, when you are born, you know you're born. When I was born again, they showed me the scripture that gave me life. First uh, John 5, 13. Uh, These things I write unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. We can know we have eternal life. But then the scripture says in Hosea, let us go on to know the Lord. Uh, a new baby uh, knows that's their mother and that's their father, but they don't really know them. They come to know them. And that's what God was challenging me personally with, is to really know him and know his presence in a deeper way that I did, and that was my friend Nancy, same thing. And so that's what I felt God was giving us a challenge, to go on to really know the Lord Amen. and to come, not to come become complacent because we are adopted, we're in the family, we're going to heaven, not to be satisfied with that, but to go on to a deep relationship with knowing the Lord. That's it. Wonderful. Thank you, Gary. Amen. The scripture says, let us press on to know the Lord. Doesn't mean we don't know him, but there's so much more. If you ever meet somebody that feels like they've really attained that they've made it, that they're there, be careful. Because it's a journey, isn't it? And there's always so much more. Gary? Go for it. Great. Let's pray as we get going this morning. Father, I thank you for salvation by grace. And Father, I thank you that that salvation turns us inside out and cleanses us and changes us and transforms us. Be with us as we open your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin a series this morning on 1 Timothy. I've been reading this book over. I would invite you in your quiet time to... Just be working your way through this beautiful book of 1 Timothy. And you know, this year at City Hill, we felt the Lord call us that this is a year of discipleship. And we've talked about how Jesus discipled his disciples. I mean, he was making disciples. He called them. 
He did many different things. One is he called them to be with him. The disciples, not just about doing it right, but they learned by watching and, and developing a relationship with Christ. They saw him pray and they said, Jesus, man, we pray, but man, teach us how to pray. It's a great prayer for all of us. And then we see in the scriptures that a disciple is baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're full of the Holy Spirit. And God gives us gifts. And those gifts aren't to make us special or to put something on our crown. But those gifts are to be used to minister to each other. I'm excited about the prophetic weekend coming up in two weeks where we get to enjoy and practice some of the gifts that God has given to the congregation to minister to each other. I can't tell you how many times somebody will say, well, you know, I, uh, there was a word given me four years ago that really marked my life. And that word, and those words of God, when in line with the Holy Spirit and in line with the Scriptures, can be powerful things in our lives. The gifts of the Spirit are, flo are flowing, the gift of the Spirit. But also the fruit of the Spirit. I love a statement I heard years ago. It said, never judge a leader by his gifts, but by his fruit. That, that one can take you quite a ways. You can have somebody charismatic, moving into gifts, even healing, even real works of God through their lives, but where is, their, where is the fruit in their lives? Look at the fruit. Because God will use anybody he can find. I remember a pastor I worked with that was in sin, full-out sin, and people were coming to the Lord through his ministry. That, that's, that's hard. And when it finally came out, the sin in his life, people who got saved during that period said, well, whoa, whoa, you mean this was going on, and I got saved under his ministry? Am I really saved? And I said, well, who saved you? So, well, Jesus saved me. I said, you're all good then. God will use people to get his work done, even people who are not walking right. But look at the fruit. And a disciple has fruit. A good apple tree has apples. A disciple has fruit in their lives. And so it's important. Think of the fruit. Just love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance, which is self-control, and faith. The fruit of the Spirit flows through the life of a disciple. So the character of a disciple matters greatly. It's not just what you know, but what God does in your heart. And my take home for this morning, I'm going to give it to you a couple times, is that faith in Christ must transform. I'll say that again. Faith in Christ, what you know in Christ, what you believe in Christ, must transform you. We could put that in other words like walk the walk, practice what you preach, talk is cheap, or Jesus changes everything. All of those are different ways of saying it's somehow got to get from what we believe <clears throat> into how we live. And in 1 Timothy, we get an inside scoop. Love this book. It's a very personal book from, written from the Apostle Paul. They think he was, the authors or the scholars would say he was on a journey. He was not in prison at this time. And it was probably a fourth missionary journey, which was not documented. 
and he's writing to a disciple of his named Timothy. This is somewhere around the year 59. It's different people would debate exactly when that was. but So he's writing to Timothy. And Paul's insight here of what it is for Timothy. You've got to picture this. Paul had a great relationship with Timothy, and he's trying to disciple this young man into what it is to be a disciple and also what it is to pastor this church in Ephesus. So we see him writing about different problems that were going on in the church, but also writing to Timothy in particular. Now we've got to realize that this is the Word of God, right? This is 1 Timothy. This is the Bible. In 2 Timothy, which was a book he wrote a little bit later, we read, All scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness so the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. But you got to realize that when Paul was writing this, the New Testament hadn't all been written. So he was writing, it involves, it includes all the New Testament which was being written, but Paul was certainly applying this to the Old Testament. And I just want to make that statement very clear because there are there are ways of thinking, there are teachings going on today that would say the Old Testament is no longer applicable for us today. And I would disagree with that strongly. This is the Word of God. Now, there are ways to understand it and interpret it. I get that. But the whole Word of God is valuable and valid and important for us today. And Paul says that. And so... When Paul is writing this letter, we have to realize that there's two things going on. One is he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Whether he or the scribe who was physically writing it at times, he's being inspired. It says men wrote as they were inspired or indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So that is happening. It's a God-breathed Word of God. And at the same time, he's writing to a young buddy of his named Timothy about what's going on in a local church and how to deal with it. You say, well, which is it? Is it a personal letter or is it the Word of God? And I say, yes. It is both. And we have to understand as we read the Scriptures how to interpret the Scriptures. And this is not easy. It's a constant debate, and it's a good debate to say, what is this particular Scripture? Some of the Scriptures we read are personal, or may I say pastoral. They're telling, they're telling Timothy what to do in this situation. Like at one point in the first verses here, he says, stay in Ephesus. Well, that would be pastoral, right? We don't all have to go, oh, I love Jesus. I should move to Ephesus. That's what the Bible says it. I believe the Word of God. We should all, if you love Jesus, you got to live in this city called Ephesus. We'd say, no, no, this is, but it's the Word of God. You get into that argument, and Paul's saying, no, I'm writing to Timothy, and I'm talking about this, the church that he's working with, and for this time, I want you to stay in Ephesus. Even Timothy probably traveled outside of Ephesus after that time. Those are pastoral words. But then there are the eternal truths and wisdom of the Scriptures which apply to us today in Eden Prairie. 
And our job, part of our job is to look at the scriptures and understand what was going on so we can better understand and better apply the word of God. So we have to realize that Paul's not writing into a void. He's writing to, in a particular time, in a particular city, or a particular place, to a man. We have to understand the context of what he writes. And so I want to read today the first seven verses of 1 Timothy. And fortunately, we have the Apostle Paul with us today. Um, Paul, would you come on up? A.K.A. John Gill, come on up and uh, read for us the first seven verses of Timothy, please. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Thank you. So let's break this apart a little bit. Verse 1, he, Paul asserts that he's an apostle. And he says, basically what he's saying is, look, I used to persecute the church. I was against them. I hauled people off to prison. I was an enemy of the gospel. And then God showed up. And he knocked me off my high horse, blinded me, healed me, and called me. He called me to be an apostle. So listen up. I'm not just talking. This is not just my opinion. This is not just my debate about philosophy, but God called me. So if you got a problem with what I'm saying, take it up with him. That's what I hear Paul say. I am an apostle, so listen up. And then verse 2, he says, To Timothy, my true child, my son in the faith. I want you to hear the tenderness of this scripture. I don't know where else Paul speaks of someone being his son. He speaks of Timothy. He had a dear relationship with Timothy for years. What do we know of Timothy? We know that Timothy's mother, named Eunice, was a Jewish believer, and she was married to a Greek godly man, we assume. And they started the church in Ephesus years before, and from that he got to know Timothy, and Timothy loved Jesus. Timothy knew the Lord, and Paul was discipling this young man. So he speaks to him with, as a father, with that tender-heartedness. And we, we read that his first verses to him says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't you like that? Grace, mercy, and peace. 
Think of other words he could have used. He could have said words like righteousness, holiness, fear of God, obedience and perfection be yours. Those are all good things. And they make me shudder. And I think of the ways that I fall short. And Paul, as a father, says grace. Grace is known as receiving that which you don't deserve. Praise God for his grace. Anybody need some grace today? Mercy, not receiving what you deserve. Praise God for his mercy. Anybody need some mercy this morning? And then peace. I love the peace that passes all understanding. You can be in a storm. You can be in the worst situation of your life. You can be in conflict, and you can receive the peace of God, which passes all understanding. You can somehow be in the middle of it and go, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And so I want to just say to us today, that same blessing that Paul had, grace, mercy, and peace be yours in Jesus' name. Isn't that beautiful? And that's what Paul's thinking of is this young buck, Timothy, pastoring this difficult church, and he's going, oh, man, this guy is surrounded by problems and problem makers. Oh, Timothy, grace, peace, mercy be yours. And then he jumps into the meat of his letter. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, pastoral verse so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, when I hear that word certain persons, I I smile. I think of, we have this phrase in Spanish, it's called fulano. And fulano means that guy. That we're not going to name, but we all know exactly who we're talking about. (laughs) And so we'll say, well, you know, fulano, and that, you know, really it's, it's, I was going to say a name, but poor guy would be picking on today. It, it, it's Dean McClure, that troublemaker back there. <coughs> um, it's something, and we all know it, but we go, and then there's that guy, you know, that guy, and we all go, mm, yeah, well, he, this is what Paul's doing. He says, there are certain people, certain people who want you to teach not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies which promote speculation, rather than stewardship or promoting the work of God that is by faith. I want to jump to verse 6. Certain persons, once again, by serving from the pure doctrine of the gospel, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they're saying or the things which they make confident assertions. I hear him in the background going, blah, blah, blah. It's these people who take great pride in understanding the insights of the gospel. I remember a guy preaching a sermon. And I like this guy, but his sermon was, why did they catch 153 fish? And his whole sermon was on the numerology of one, five, and three, and how that had this whole message, and I thought, It's because there wasn't 154. 
You know, I mean, I think, I think you want to say there were a whole lot of fish. There were they, we, so many, we counted them. There were 153. But he had this whole sermon about Numbers 1, 5, and 3. And I thought, you know, does it really matter? Is that really what the gospel is about, is the number of fish that were caught? I don't think so. But he said, you know, Jesus revealed the deeper mysteries of God to me, brother. I thought, well, bless you. Hallelujah. Um, I don't think that's where our focus should be. I think our focus, we have to be careful that we don't focus on the unimportant things, but that we focus on what is important to the gospel. You see, Paul had taught the church in Ephesus that he had helped establish. He taught them the gospel of Christ. And then he left the church with Timothy. And what was going on in this church is like, take genealogies he mentions here. This is where they were saying things like, well, I have the authority because I'm of the tribe of Levite. And my, aunt, my great-great-grandfather, and they had some genealogy which gave them authority to speak because they were of the priesthood or they were of the line of Benjamin or they had all these genealogies that were trying to give them authority to be speakers of the gospel. And Paul says, it doesn't matter. Don't go down that road. There were myths that they were teaching. Greek, a lot of Greek mythology was going on at this time. And I thought, you know, what myths do we hold to? And I, I came up with one. I thought of this American myth. You ever heard in the difficult situation where a child would die and people would say, well, you know, they've gone to heaven and, and they've become an angel. They've got their wings. It's not biblical. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says humans become angels. You may find it on Hallmark cards, but you're not going to find it in the Word of God. And those are myths that we sometimes speak of. And they had all sorts of myths going on in the church in Ephesus. Then they had false doctrines. One of the false doctrines circulating was that Jesus did not come in the flesh. That Jesus came as a spirit. He looked like a person, but he was more ethereal. He was floating around, and he, just, he faked us all out. But God could not become flesh, and so he was simply a spirit. And these were false doctrines. And Paul's saying, don't listen to that. That's not the gospel. And then meaningless, <clears throat> meaningless speculation. And the meaningless speculation, the, the worst I've heard is, it came to fruition, I think, in the 13th century where they had what was called angelology. Try that word three times. Angelology. Thank you. <clears throat> he had an interpretation of that. And one of the major questions was how many angels could dance on the head of a pin? Oh, and they spent days, probably months, maybe years debating how many angels could dance on the head of a pin? So some said, well, an infinite number because angels are purely spiritual. They don't take up physical space. So an infinite number could dance on the head of a pin. They were debated by those much wiser who said, no angels can dance on the head of a pin because angels are non-bodily beings and dancing is a physical act. So therefore... No, you're so wrong. No angels could dance on the head of the pin. The third side came in and said, oh, no, you're both wrong. The question is blasphemous because dancing is sinful 
and angels would never sin. So, and they went round and round, and Paul would say to them, who cares? It doesn't matter. But, you know, I've learned that whenever I laugh at somebody or think something critical of someone like this, you know, you say you get one finger going out and you got three or four fingers pointing back at you. When you find yourself criticizing someone else, stop and ask the question, Lord, where am I guilty of this? It's a really good question because normally you find out you're not innocent either. You criticize someone for criticizing. You think, oops, I guess I'm guilty as well. And when I think of some of the arguments, now I'll probably offend somebody here, but here goes. I think of some of the discussions we've had. Here goes. Like end times. Now, I'm going to say from the beginning, it's important for us to keep in mind that Christ is returning. The Bible says soon. We should live our lives as if Christ, that is important because we order our lives realizing life is short and Christ is coming back. That is important. But then we ask, when will he come pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation? And you can divide churches over that question. And you know, it's really not that clear in the scriptures. Now, some would argue with me. I get that. And I would say, does it really, really matter? I heard a pastor say, here's the three positions, but here's my final line. When Jesus comes, I go. And I like that. So we're going to teach on it something. We'll talk about it. We'll have Bible study. We can talk. That's fine on a limited basis. But if your whole life is wrapped up in the tribulation, if that is the focus of your life, and day after day, month after month, that is the focus of your Christian study, I would say, why? Now, if you're offended, we can catch the emails later. <laughs> and I might say, defend that it really matters for how you live your life today. Paul's question to all of these things would be, so what? It's a good question for you to take home. So what? What difference do these things matter? Don't waste your time on endless theological debates that don't affect your life and your holiness and your godliness today. This all circles back to verse 5. I skipped verse 5 going through it. I want to circle back because I believe it's the heart of Paul's message today. He says in verse 5, the aim... The aim, the purpose, the goal, the reason of our charge is, one more time, the goal is love. That issues or flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let's say those three together. That flows from a, a pure heart, pure heart, let's say it, pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let those things drop into your heart for a moment. If your life, if you're living today with a, a pure heart, ever meet somebody with a pure heart? People just have that, that goodness flowing from them. It's got that pure heart in them. 
Their conscience is clear. They're not carrying the baggage. They've dealt with their stuff. They've given it over to Jesus. And their faith is sincere. They simply love the Lord. Just being with people like that impacts you. Spent some time traveling in the Dominican Republic with an elder man who was an evangelist in, in Iran for 20 years. Lost his wife to persecution. And he was the closest to an apostle I probably ever met in the sense of that he just loved Jesus so much. When I was around him, he just, he, you'd see him, he'd be walking around, he'd just, thank you, Lord. He's just breathing out Jesus every breath he took. I'm in the car, we're driving on the road, and he's just worshiping. I had to, like, interrupt him to see if he wanted to get something to eat. He just... His heart was so pure. His love for Christ was so authentic. I say, God, give me more of that. So that just being around people like that will have us love the Lord more. And it, the point is this, that our theology, what we believe, must impact the way we live. Say it again. What you believe has got to impact the way you live. It's got to. It has to affect how we treat each other, how we speak to each other, how we forgive each other. When I hear a Christian say, I'll never forgive that person, I go, oof. There's just something wrong about that statement. God doesn't give us that option. How we serve each other, laying down our lives for each other. You know, and it it boggles my mind. It's hard for me when I see people who have walked with Christ for years. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, but when we've walked with Christ for years, and yet we still see very selfish lives, or highly critical lives, or lives that are stingy and tight with their time and their finances, or how about this, those that have walked with Christ for a long time, but their sex lives are out of control. You say, well, really? I go, oh yeah, really? Do you know, I was reading, it said that a new study on Christian attitudes towards dating and marriage says that among Christians, there's a broad acceptance, as in a majority, who accept cohabitation, premarital sex, and a rejection of, trans, of traditional gender roles. All of these things are very clearly spoken to in the scriptures. But the experts believe that many Christians are following cultural trends over scripture. How about you? What affects what you believe? And when the cultural trend smacks up against the word, which do you go with? Which do you go with? When I talk to Christians who believe that sex before marriage is fine, I realize we have a lot deeper issue than their sex lives. I realize the issue really is what position does the Word of God have in their lives? Faith in Christ must transform us at every level. 
unless you think I'm ragging on you today and saying we got this new list and we got to come on guys get with it you know quit sinning and that's not my heart here this morning my heart it goes back to verse 5 the aim or the goal of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart a good conscience and sincere faith. And those are things that God has for each of us. As we clear our conscience, as, we, as our faith becomes sincere, then we say, God, change those things in me that are not pleasing to you. It's really an issue of lordship. And as I, you know, whenever you prepare a sermon, you, you, gotta, you gotta bring it back home. I prepare a sermon, it's like, okay, Lord, what are you speaking to me today? And I'd just like us, as we close today, I'd like us to ask the Lord, where has my faith, what I know, not dropped into my heart and in the way I live? Where have I justified sin? Where have I justified a lack of love? Where have I justified that because, well, and you can fill in the blank, well, that's the way the world is, or that's the way I think the scriptures ought to be, or I wish God were like this. Or you, can, you can fill in the blank of how we justify our sin. But God wants what we believe to be transferred into our lives, that he's tenderizing us. I, uh, I think I can share this. Uh, went to visit Dan Peach. Is Diane here today? Hi, Diane. Went to visit your husband, He's in the hospital down in Normandale. Went to visit him, and I had a great talk with him. And Dan said, God's been talking to me. I said, cool, Dan. What's God saying? He said, well, I've decided that God wants a new me. I said, what's that? He goes, I think instead of being tough and strong and opinionated, I'm going to be sensitive and, sensitive and touchy-feely. I said, give me a hug, Dan. And I thought, you know, he was laughing. He was just, but he was also sincere about that God, while he sat there in his hospital room, the Lord was ministering. He was listening to the Lord. And God wanted to bring some tenderness into Dan's heart. And I thought, I love it. We're never too old or too smart or too established to say, God, where do you want to change my character? Where do you want to change the way I treat people? Where do you want to change the way I pray or the way I let your life be seen in me? Please don't let yourself ever say these words. Well, that's just the way I am. What are you really saying there? You're saying, I am sinful, I have these problems, and I'm going to live with it, and you should too. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God wants to transform us from the inside out. He wants what's in our minds, the teachings, the truths that we have, not to stay here, but to drop down here. That's where Dan Crawl loves to say, I know that I know that I know that I know that I know. Where it drops down and it becomes part of your moral fiber and it changes us. The worship team can come up. 
It's really an issue of head knowledge dropping down into heart knowledge. I've known people who are Greek scholars, Hebrew professors. They can run circles around all of us in the understanding of and the parsing of some Hebrew word. We need people like that, praise the Lord. But my question is, are they saved? Do they love Jesus? Are they, are they shining the light of Christ in their daily walk? And in all our teaching here at church, in all your reading, your, de your devotionals, and whatever you do, be like Paul that goes back and says, what is the aim of what I'm learning? What is the goal? So what? What difference does this make? We want knowledge, but not so knowledge will puff us up so we can be prideful, better, smarter than somebody else in the gospel. We want knowledge of Jesus so that our lives can be transformed. And that scripture that I'll end with is, it says, may the word of God dwell in you richly. That would be my prayer for you this morning. May the word of God, the truth of the gospel, may it dwell in you richly. May it take root so that the life of Christ can be seen in you. The, a quote from, a quote from um, John Calvin, one of the great theologians of the 15th century says, let us therefore remember that all doctrines must be tried by this rule, that those which contribute to edification can be, be approved. So if a doctrine contributes to us growing in love and godliness, it's a good doctrine. And those which give ground for unprofitable disputes may be rejected as unworthy of the church of God. May we be those that major on the majors. May we be those that focus on walking and loving Jesus Christ and letting him transform us. I want to pray. If you could just put your books aside, your notes aside for a moment. I want to let the Lord in the next few minutes just minister to you. If you want to open your hands just as a sign of Open this before Christ. In Jesus, we would say, shine your light on areas where our head knowledge has not dropped into our life, into our DNA, into our heart knowledge. Jesus, reveal where, reveal with gentleness and kindness where our lives do not glorify you. Father, we don't want a long list of do's and don'ts. But we want a heart that is soft towards your spirit and ears that are open to say, Jesus wants to change me. Jesus wants to remake me. And that, God, we would embrace that rather than resist and defend what your, what your spirit wants to do in us. Father, even as we close in a 
song of worship, I pray, God, that you would be speaking to each of us individually, revealing where your spirit's got a, a finger on something, saying, I've got better for you here. Father, help us to be your sons and your daughters that glorify you in everything we do and every word we speak. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Let's just worship with one song and then we'll close. We're going to just sing the chorus of the Who You Say I Am. So sing that out with us. Who the sun?